Well, we do have one assignment due today. Homework number five uh, is due today or of course by 6 o'clock tomorrow morning if you're submitting it to the Dropbox on D2L. And then we have a third, at least one more solar observation. Of course, I'll take as many as you have, whatever else you have and take a look at that uh, on Wednesday and get those back to you on Friday. And that's the last time I'll take a look at those before the project is due with, towards the end of November. We do have a quiz coming up the end of this week, which will be chapters 11, cover chapters 11 and 12, quiz number 5. That'll be available starting on Friday and through the weekend, and I'll remind you of that on Monday. And then an exam coming up on Monday, the third of the four exams before the final. And that will cover chapters 10 and 11, which we've already finished, and chapter 12, which we're working on right now and we'll finish this week. So, any questions on anything here? Nope, nope. Alrighty. Well, picture of the day for today, liking that sunspot group for us. So, it seems like every time we're here, we're seeing something with the sunspots. And here we are again, a little bit different this time. If you notice the other, that's not completely sunspots. There's the sunspot group up there that we've been uh, noticed last week and has been producing some flares. So we did have some very big, what you call X-class flares, the highest class of solar flare uh, that have been directed towards Earth and have caused some uh, interesting, you know, some disruptions to communications, nothing horribly major, but have actually, you know, caused some interference. But below there, the photographer also timed this so that an airplane, got the silhouette of an airplane flying across it as well. Not very easy to do. It don't have to go that far away to move to shift the position of the plane relative to the sun enough that it's either below it or above it. So you've got to really time that exactly right to get the plane flying across, to have it appear flying across the face of the sun. We also see clouds, set of clouds there on Earth. And of course we're also looking at the eclipse from last Thursday. This is the moon here blocking out a portion of the sun. So really looking here at the sun you're seeing all these different layers, all these different levels put together, things that are very close to us that are in our atmosphere such as the plane itself here and the clouds are in our atmosphere. We've got the moon much further away blocking out a portion of the sun and then even beyond that uh, we have you know hundreds of thousands of miles away, we have things that are just you know uh, clouds you know, miles away, hundreds of thousands up to uh, millions of many millions of miles away for the sun, sun being 93 million miles and the sun itself and the sunspot group that we've been watching uh, are present there. So interesting little view you get to kind of see all that at once and kind of emphasizes the idea that we lose track of all those distances when we look out at the sky. Things don't look like they're necessarily closer or further away. I mean, we know that the airplane has to be a lot closer than the sun, but you know, how much and all of that is only using our perspective. If we didn't know the size of the airplane, you'd have no clue whether that was real close or real far away. You know, you have to using your own perspective to really try to estimate some of these distances. And that doesn't work when we're looking at things like stars and galaxies much further out that we'll be talking about over the coming weeks. Questions? Nope. All right, we will head back to the stars and looking at the star, a star like the sun as it goes through its life. And previously, the previous chapter, we had gone through and talked about the formation of a star like the sun. 
Then we kind of skimmed over its main sequence life, the majority of its life. Nothing much happens there. And we're getting to the, now it's getting to the end of its life. And we're up to what we call stage 10. Stage 10 is helium fusion. Now the sun, what's happening, has been happening, is that the sun, the core of the sun has been compact, compacting. It's all helium now. All the hydrogen in the core part is gone. Lots of hydrogen outside. Still lots of hydrogen in the sun. But the core where the temperatures are the highest has all fused all that hydrogen to helium. So it's just slowly compacting down, pushing close. It's very dense and it's just pushing itself as close as it possibly can. So it's eventually taking that core, which will have most of the mass of the sun, and compressing it down to the size of about the Earth. So making that core, almost the whole mass, compressing down to about the size of the Earth, and that greatly increases the temperatures. We started at about 15 million degrees, go up to 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 million degrees. Eventually, you get to 100 million degrees. Once you get there, you can actually begin to fuse helium. You're at a high enough temperature that those helium atoms can combine together. You can overcome the fact that this one has two positive charges, this nucleus has two positive charges, and they really want to push each other apart. You need really high temperatures to get them close enough that they'll begin to fuse. And not only that, but you also have to fuse for helium. To fuse helium, you take three helium atoms to form carbon. So you not only have to get two close enough together, you've got to get three together all at the same time. So you've got to actually smash three helium atoms together, and that's why you need that very, very high temperature to get carbon. Why not just smash two together? Well, it turns out if you smash two helium to atoms together, what it forms is unstable and breaks apart immediately. So you can't just smash two helium atoms together to form a heavier element. It's uh, very, uh, very unstable, just it forms and it falls apart before there's even time for another one to hit it. So you really need all three at once, three helium atoms to form a carbon atom, which is nice and stable. So now you have another source of energy for this star. When it happens, the helium flash occurs very fast. That temperature is 100 million degrees. And that material is so dense, it's so densely packed down that normally when you heat something up, it expands. It starts to grow in size and cools off so you get some kind of stability. The, the core of this star is so dense that doesn't happen. It tries to expand it, but there's so much material it expands it very slowly. So it's really like a runaway, almost a runaway explosion going on. It's trying to expand that. It takes a few hours to make that expand outward. But you've produced a lot of energy in that time. Now you will reach another equilibrium. The core will expand. The outer layers remember, will contract. So they, they work opposite each other. Remember when the core contracted, the outer layers expand, we formed a giant star? Now the core is going to expand because we have a new source of energy there. It's going to start getting a little bit bigger and the outer layers are going to contract down. The star is going to become a little bit smaller again. It's going to go from being 100 times the size of the sun, maybe down to about 10 or 15 times the size of the sun. And it has a new source of energy. Once it's expanded and it's uh, pushed that core apart, made it a little bit less dense than it was before, it now has a new source of energy and it's going to happily fuse helium into carbon for as long as it has an energy source, till it runs out of helium in the, in the core. We'll find with each stage of energy, Hydrogen lasted 10 billion years, helium will last, you know, millions of years for the sun.
not near as long. Each stage goes through much faster. It takes a lot more energy to, you need to produce a lot more energy from helium to be able to support that star. Each reaction from hydrogen produced so much energy. Remember it was a tiny amount, but we had lots and lots of them. Well, helium produces a much smaller amount of energy. Fusing three heliums into one carbon produces a lot less energy than each step of the proton-proton chain. Yes, ma'am? How would it affect us? Not significantly, because we wouldn't really see. I mean, we'd be, first of all, we'd already be gone, but if you could be there watching it, you really wouldn't notice a whole lot. It would be this star. Again, this happens over a couple hours. The actual changing of the star size is not going to happen in hours. It's going to take it a longer period of time. So we really wouldn't notice, except that the sun would be. It would. It would actually cool things off because remember the sun is now going to get smaller and maybe a little bit warmer, but it's going to get smaller so it's not going to be as close. Instead of having 3,000 degrees right in your face, you're going to have five, four or 5,000 degrees but much further away from you. So it would probably actually cool things off at this level if the sun had not expanded big enough to have already engulfed us. Okay, good. But the problem is that each little bit, each one of these reactions does not produce a whole lot of energy. Does not produce a whole lot of energy. So you need lots more of them going on to keep the sun supported against gravity. So now we have a new energy source, and we're going to move again on the question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's three times as much uh, dark matter when the helium starts to fuse since the protons are splitting apart. Not, no splo- they're smashing together. They're smashing together. But it's not, dark matter doesn't come in here. I thought uh, neutrinos were dark matter. Uh, there's a possibility they could be related to it. But I don't, I'd have to look up the reaction again, but I don't know if there's a neutrino that comes out of this reaction. So there may not be neutrinos that come out, come out of that. So now we have another jump on the HR diagram. What we've done so far, we started out here. That's where the sun is right now, where it'll stay for 5 billion years. As it uses up the last of that fuel, it's going to cool off its outer layers and it's going to expand 10 times bigger, 100 times bigger. It comes up to a point here. That's where the helium flash occurs. All of a sudden, right here, it has no energy generation at the core. The core is just contracting, contracting, contracting until it reaches the critical temperature to ignite helium. Now all of a sudden it has a new energy source and it relatively quickly moves and lands on what we call the horizontal branch. So that's stage 10 here. It's now burning helium into carbon in its core. So it has a new energy source. It's back to being stable. It's producing energy to hold it up against gravity. The core is no longer longer collapsing. And we've reached a new stage of stability. Now, that doesn't last very long. It's going to start forming carbon ash at the center. The carbon's going to start collapsing. It's going to, uh, the core is going to become hotter and hotter and hotter. As you increase the temperatures, the reactions are going to go faster and faster, and you're using up the helium very, very quickly. So you're going to end up with carbon at the center. Now you have carbon at the core, and you have helium around that. So the carbon is inert. It's just sitting there. It's not hot enough to burn the carbon, so it's just sitting there at the core. Just like the helium was before, now the carbon is there. If you can heat the carbon up to high enough temperatures, you could ignite it. Sun won't be able to do that. Sun will not have enough material there. So you have a carbon core here. You have helium burning around that. 
So this is this temperature is where it's hot enough to burn helium. So the helium is burning into carbon, adding to the core. And around that you have hydrogen burning. Hydrogen burns, temperatures are a little bit lower, but you're hot enough to burn hydrogen into helium. So you're forming more helium, which adds to the helium layer, which eventually fuses into carbon. So these layers start to build on each other. You've got carbon, helium adding to that, hydrogen adding to the helium. The rest of the sun just sits there. It's transporting the energy outward, but it's not producing any energy. The energy is only being produced at those very central layers. The same thing is happening that we had happened early on. We had last, when we looked at this the last time, we first used up the hydrogen and formed helium at the center. And you had a hydrogen burning shell and you had the star expanding. Now we have the same thing again, that carbon ash is going to contract down to very small sizes. And the shells are going to keep burning and expand the outer layers further out into space. So exactly the same has happened before, except the temperatures are much, much hotter. You now have hundreds of millions of degrees at the center. You have two layers here, two shells, and these outer layers are then expanding outward. And this is at the point where it's going to start, if it hadn't engulfed the Earth before, now, we're, now it's going to get us. Because now it's going to expand even larger. You've got all this going on at the core, contracting. All the outer layers are swelling out. And Mercury's already gone, Venus and the Earth and Mars will then be swallowed up. So we'll all become part, part of the Sun and be burned, burned into it at some point during this, during this stage. So it's our second, it's becoming a giant again. It went down and got, got much smaller, it's only like 10 times the size of the Sun. Big compared to what it is now, but not near as big as it will eventually become. Now we're getting the same situation, it's going back to the giant branch again. And that's what we show on the HR diagram here. Here we began the helium fusing, landed here. This is actually a region where it's stable. It's going to stay here for a little while and burn that helium. So it's not instantaneous. This was very quick. This only took hours. It's going to sit here for millions of years, burning helium much less than it lasted here because the, you go through that helium fuel so much faster. But as it begins to exhaust that, it heads back up to the giants and actually beyond where it was and into the supergiant phase. So this is when it will swell and completely engulf the Earth. We call that the asymptotic giant branch. It's essentially going back to the giant and supergiant branch again. So it's getting greatly increased in size. Here it was maybe 10, 20 times the size of the sun. Now it's going up to 100, 200 times the size the sun is right now. And it's become a red giant again. So the sun will become a red giant when its core is contracting and it's getting ready to burn helium. It will do the same thing again as it's trying to get ready to burn carbon. It wants to. It wants, to, wants some energy source. But it's just not going to have enough material there to be able to smash carbon. Carbon has six protons and six protons. Now you're trying to smash 12 protons together. You need even higher temperatures to be able to do that. Some stars can do it. A star with more mass would be able to do that, would be able to create a high enough temperature. The sun won't. So we're getting real close to the very end of the sun's life right now. Here's kind of putting it all together. Once you get to carbon and actually oxygen you can form, you're about done. So this is about what happens here. There's the formation. There's the gas cloud. You form the sun. You get to the main sequence. It kind of just sits there and sits there and sits there and sits there and around and around and around. It's trying to give you an idea of the time, time scale. 
Didn't take very long for this to happen. Sat there on the main sequence for a heck of a long time. Went through its end of its life very quickly. It's only talking, you know, millions of years, tens of millions of years. Here, as compared to even a little bit longer here, and much longer times on the main sequence, and then as a white dwarf star. Now a star like the Sun will never be able to fuse things like carbon together. Oxygen, uh, if you add one more helium, you switch from carbon and you make it oxygen. It's not too bad, it can usually do that. But it can't go any higher, it cannot fuse any higher elements. So even in a star like the Sun at the center, we've gotten up to about the eighth element of the periodic table. So the universe itself created one and two when the universe formed. Now the Sun can get us up to about oxygen. We still have to, when we get to more massive stars, that's where all of those heavier elements that make up us and the Earth have to come from. So this just kind of gives you that in a little picture showing the, t giving a better idea of the time frame. Spends a lot of time as a white dwarf, a lot of time as a main sequence star, very little time in the areas that we've been concentrating on, but that's when everything interesting is happening. Now that core continues to contract, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The outer layers continue to expand. So as they get bigger and bigger, eventually they get to the point where the gravity of the sun <coughs> is just not able to hold them. Any little instabilities, it might pulse a little bit and it pushes those outer layers off. Eventually they reach, essentially reach escape velocity from the sun. It isn't very high, it doesn't take very much when they've expanded out that far. And eventually what happens is that the core is left behind at the center here and the outer layers are expelled out into space. So we see this as what we call a planetary nebula. And there's the outer layers, that's what was a big chunk of the star, the outer layers of the star, now just expanding outward into space, stretching across light years. Same thing here, here, here. Slightly different, they don't all happen exactly the same because there could be different properties. Maybe there's two stars there, maybe it's not just a single star. Maybe there's multiple stars present. That gives you a slightly different pattern that maybe the way the star is orbiting around, they're orbiting around each other. So you get slightly different patterns, but all planetary, all are planetary nebula, all have this dense, very hot core at the center, and the outer layers expelled out in varying patterns. They glow just like the emission nebulae that we looked at before. This central core is hundreds of thousands of degrees to start out with, really hot, and it's emitting a lot of ultraviolet radiation. So it is enough to excite and cause all of this material to glow. As this cools off and this expands outward, the, the material will slowly disappear from sight. Say disappear from sight, it's not really going any place, it's just expanding out. But unless you have an energy source to illuminate it, it's just dark, dusty, gassy material expanding out into space. So the rest of that will slowly disappear. Again, we're just catching it at that instant where we happen to be able to see this. This is a very short stage, maybe tens of thousands of years of a life of a star. Again, we've already talked about hundreds of millions and billions and then more millions of years and here's a stage that only lasts you know, tens of thousands of years, much, much shorter. So those are some examples of a planetary nebula here and what we have are two parts. You have the core of the star at the center, pretty much made up completely of carbon very tiny, about the size of the Earth. So you've taken most of the mass of the Sun. Most of the mass is still there. 
all that material that gets ejected out is you know, a fraction of the mass, depending on how massive the star was, but maybe only 10-20% of the mass that's actually expelled outward into space. You have a core left behind, and you have an envelope that expands outward, maybe the size of the solar system. And getting bigger, it'll eventually go out to, you know, uh, many times the size of the solar system, pushing out to light years across. This is what we call a planetary nebula. It has nothing to do with planets, regardless of its name. It's thought it may be named that because if you were looking at this, it might have looked like you saw a star and you saw this gas around it. Maybe it is a planetary system beginning to form. Uh, maybe some of those small round ones through a tiny telescope actually looked like a planet. You know, it looked like a small disk through a telescope. So even though we call it a planetary nebula, it has nothing to do with planets or planets forming. It just may look like that through a smaller telescope. We now know it's really the end state of a star like the Sun. That's where the Sun is going to end up. And that envelope will slowly expand out into space and dissipate. It'll become part of the material, part of the interstellar material that will form future stars. So that outer envelope will just slowly expand out into space. It will disappear. Once that uh, core has cooled off enough, it'll disappear. and all we'll have left then, that'll expand out into space, all that'll be left is that dense core. And that's what we call a white dwarf star. So a white dwarf star at the center quite different from the brown dwarfs we mentioned before. We had a brown dwarf. Brown dwarf star was one that was failed. It wasn't able to get enough temperature to fuse hydrogen into helium. A white dwarf star, on the other hand, is a star at the end of its life. It was a star, now it's just the dense core remaining of a star. So, we kind of jump around, we zoom real quick along here. We were up here, all of a sudden the star just continues to expand, those outer layers get pushed off. Very few stars do you ever see in here, just because it takes a very uh, short period of time. And then eventually what you see, begin to see, is the white dwarf here. So we begin to see a white dwarf star starting down at stage 13. Extremely hot. So that may be tens of thousands of degrees as it was first coming out. It'll be hundreds of thousands. It'll cool off quickly to you know, 30,000, 10,000 degrees. And it no longer has an energy source. It's hot, but there's no energy being produced in its core. So it's really one of the first, it's um, a remnant or a dead star. It's what's left over after the star has gone through its life. We'll see a couple other remnants in the next chapter, but this is the first of them. This is one of the things that a star can become when it reaches the end of its life is a white dwarf. This is what the sun will become. It'll be extremely dense. Um, millions of times denser than the Sun is right now. And it will be the size of the Earth. We're compressing all that material down to the size of the Earth. Produces no energy. That's why I call it a dead star. A star itself was fusing hydrogen into helium. This white dwarf isn't. It's just made of carbon. It's hot. It was originally hundreds of millions of degrees when it was actually you know, fusing. And it just sat there, it's slowly, slowly, slowly cooling off. So it'll start off cooling off a little faster, drop down to tens of thousands of degrees, and then it will slowly continue to cool 
until it becomes a black dwarf star. So the next stage and the longest stage for the sun would be a black dwarf. White dwarf is just because it's white hot. It's still 10,000 degrees. As it continues to cool off, you know, every year it cools off a little bit. So it'll go down to 9,000 and 8,000 and 7,000. Takes a long, long time for the white dwarf to radiate away that energy. Eventually, many billions, trillions of years from now, it'll, be, it'll just cool off to the temperature of space. It'll just be down there, impossible to see, completely dark, not emitting any energy anymore. Because the temperature of space is down to just a couple degrees, so you really won't be able to, wouldn't be able to see it. And that's what we call a black dwarf star. It would just be completely dark. There aren't any yet. The amount of time it takes a white dwarf to cool off is longer than the age of the universe. So even if one formed very early on, 14 billion years ago, and went through its life real quick, finished, uh, finished its life then, it still hasn't had time to cool off. This isn't something going from 13 down to 14 here, you know, working your way cooler, isn't something that happens in a million years or a billion years. You know, it's more like a trillion year type thing. 14 billion years, we've still got a long, long time to go before even the earliest white dwarfs get down to this kind of stage. But eventually, That'll be a lot of the material in the universe we made up of these black dwarf stars. Now, if we could come back a trillion years from now, that's what we would see, if we could see them, around, that's what you'd find around the universe. Here's an example of one. Uh, Sirius is a star you may have heard of. That's the brightest star in the sky, ignoring the sun, brightest star in the night sky. And relatively close to us, it's only about eight or nine light years away, I believe. But it's the brightest star. If you, if you know the constellation of Orion, you usually see the dog star off to his lower left following Orion through the, through the sky. And there's, it's actually two stars. So Sirius is the bright star. That's what we see. But there's also has a companion star, Sirius B. Sirius A, A being the brightest component. There's more than one star. Sirius B being the next brightest component. There's only the two there. So even though it's kind of faint there, that Sirius B is actually a white dwarf star. So this star actually has a companion that has already gone through its life. So at some point, thousands, millions of years ago, there would have been an even brighter star. It would have been an even brighter star when both of these were actually on the main sequence because this should have been a bigger, more massive star. Right? It would have to be because otherwise this star should be done with its life. The more massive star will go quicker. So two stars formed at the same time. This one's gone through its life and left, and left a white dwarf. This one's still working. It still has energy. It's still able to form, energy, form uh, fuse hydrogen into helium. So it's still staying there on the main sequence. This one had already gone through its life, became a red giant, you know, long before we were around to look at that. But we see these. We can actually detect some of these white dwarfs. Uh, here is, this is one example. We see others. Here's Hubble Space Telescope image looking at the center of a globular cluster. Okay, so we zoom in. All sorts of little tiny objects here are all very hot little white dwarfs. And we're looking, I don't know if you can see the size of the square here, but that square right about that little square, you know, the size of my finger on the screen is what we're zooming into and seeing all of the stars that are there, a great number of them are actually white dwarf stars. We can do that, we can measure the temperatures, we can measure their spectra just like we classify any other kind of star. We can now be able to determine that there are a lot of white dwarf stars in these globular clusters. 
Remember, globular clusters are very old clusters, and that means that the stars that formed there uh, have gone, most of the stars, even stars like the Sun, have gone through their lives. So lots of stars like the Sun went through, became a red giant, had the helium flash, became a horizontal branch star, went back to the giant branch, went through a planetary nebula, and all we have left behind are all these white dwarf stars. But we see lots and lots of them out there now. As the white dwarf cools, nothing much happens to it. All it's doing is now, it's not producing any energy, so it's just radiating energy out into space. And that's about it. That's about all that happens. Its size isn't going to change. It's down, it's compacted down about as tight as it can possibly get. Um, normally, material is bound together. We have all sorts of things here, you know, on Earth where you, you know, push against things. You know, you get some kind of resistance because it's solid, because you get to the point where you're pushing negative charges of the electrons in your skin, push against something, and you, you know, get some kind of resistance. Well, the same th what begins to happen here is that you're compressing all the space away from between the atoms. If you could take a star like the Sun and eliminate not any of its material, just compress it down as tight as you possibly could, get those electrons almost touching, right? Electrons are negative charges. Eventually they're going to repel each other. If you get them close enough, they're going to try to push each other apart. That gives it some kind of pressure, right? There's no energy source. There's nothing to hold it up energy-wise, it needs something, otherwise it collapses down to a black hole. Next chapter, we'll talk about that. But there has to be something that holds it up. And what it is, is that it squishes all the material, all the space out of the atoms, down to the point where the electrons are touching each other. Those electrons are almost touching each other, they're repelling. That gives the, the white dwarf some stability. It gives it some force that will hold it up, keep it from collapsing. So its size isn't going to change. It's as tiny as it can possibly be and still have atoms present. Anything smaller is going to start crushing and destroying atoms. That'll happen, but it's not, we're not quite there yet. Yes, sir? Um, let's say one of the, the stars that are bigger than a supergiant, mm -hmm. what if in its death it doesn't explode into a black star or a black hole? Mm -hmm. Would its white dwarf be bigger than the sun's? The white dwarfs actually are all pretty close to the same size. There's, there's a limit to how big it can be that we'll find out in the next chapter. If it's more than about one and a half times the mass of the sun, it can't hold up. Right? We have those electrons pushing against each other, and I think I use the example of the chair. You know, Keep putting weight on the chair or the table, eventually it collapses. Well, if you keep putting enough weight, and you've got those electrons, they can, they can put up a certain number of force, and it's a lot, but eventually you crush it. And that's one of the things that can happen that we'll be talking about here. Actually, we'll talk about later this chapter, what does happen when that, when that occurs. So you can get a more massive white dwarf. The suns will not be you know, one solar mass. Some of that material will be put out. It might be you know, three quarters or half of a solar mass once it puts the material out. And you could have bigger ones, but not lots bigger ones. If you get too much bigger, there's just not enough, there's not enough structural integrity to the white dwarf to hold it up against that much material. But just to finish up there, all it's doing is slowly getting dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and cooler and cooler and cooler until it's finally invisible. Now, one thing that a star can do that we notice, if you've heard if a nova, meaning a new star that appears, it flares up, all of a sudden it gets really, really bright. So it can go from being a very faint star here and it can get 10,000 times brighter 
10,000 times about 10 magnitudes brighter. That means this could be going from a star that's barely visible through a pair of binoculars to one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's not a supernova. We'll come to supernovae in a little bit, probably on Wednesday. But there are stars that do this where they're, you know, they're as bright as the sun. All of a sudden, they're 10,000 times brighter than the sun for a short period of time, for a few weeks to a month. They become an extremely bright star and then they go back down to we're back to where they were and it sits there again and actually in some of these cases it'll do it again. Maybe 50, maybe 100 or 1,000 years later the same star will get bright again. So we're going to see that this is actually related to what we're talking about right now as stars at the end of their life. This isn't just a star. It's not a normal star. This is going to all of a sudden get really, really bright and then get faint again and then get really, really bright again a century later and then faint. A normal star isn't going to do that. But a white dwarf star actually can. And what actually happens won't happen to our sun. Our sun never has to worry about this. Our sun will never become a nova because it requires two stars and it requires two stars close together. So Sirius, they're not, I don't believe they're close enough together that you'd actually be able to transfer material. But what happens is there's your white dwarf star, there's a main sequence or a red giant star and they're orbiting around each other. If they're close enough together then the gravity of the white dwarf can actually pull material. So it actually pulls material into a disk and that material settles on the white dwarf star. Okay, White dwarf star was, was pretty hot, not hot enough for nuclear reactions to occur. Not yet, but you're putting all this material on it. So you're going to heat up all this material. The outer layers of a star are pretty much all hydrogen. So you're putting lots and lots of hydrogen on the surface of this white dwarf star. A little bit of it won't do much. As you build up more and more, eventually you'll get to the point where there's enough pressure, enough density, because of that gravity of the star, pulling it down, compressing that material because of the heat, that you'll actually have nuclear reactions begin on the surface of the white dwarf. So you actually get a little explosion, you'll expel out that material and this star here will actually become brighter than, you know, many, many times brighter for a short period of time than it was before. It'll become hundreds of thousands of times brighter. So it can go again from being one of the fainter stars in the sky, if it was, if it was a star that was visible already, become incredibly bright, would be the brightest star in the sky. More typically, it's a new star, it's considered a new star because you never saw it before. All of a sudden there's this bright new star in this constellation that wasn't there. Glows real bright for a short time and then disappears. That's what's happening is that material is transferred between these two stars. It's a white dwarf star, you know, sort of coming back to life temporarily, building up enough hydrogen on its surface that it can actually fuse it to helium. A couple of the terms here, uh, mass transfer, we're just transferring the material. And we'll see this term again, accretion disk. It's material that is being collected into a disk around the star. Because of the way everything's rotating, material just doesn't come straight to the star. It doesn't just suck the material straight in. It can't do that. It can't just take this material and collect it straight in. It's because of the way everything's rotating and revolving, it collects it into a disk which then spirals in. So it slowly loses energy and spirals down to the white dwarf. So we'll see this when we talk about black holes. We'll see this actually on a much grander scale in galaxies that this kind of thing occurs with the, uh, galaxies as well. 
But in essence, all it's doing is getting the material somehow, getting the material that was part of this star, the outer layers, onto the surface of this white dwarf. If you get enough there, that white dwarf can actually reignite temporarily. Not the whole white dwarf, nothing's going on deep inside it, only the outer layers. But those outer layers will then begin to erupt. So here's an example of one and some images. Uh, part B is showing some images of that. There's the white dwarf star still at the center and that's the material. All the material that had captured from the, from the companion is now expanding out into space, a little ring of material there. That explosion, it didn't burn all of it. it start, once that energy started to form, bless you, it started to expand out into space. Now, this can repeat over and over again because there's no reason for it to not. We have material being transferred. Once that explosion takes place, it's a pretty good sized explosion, but it's not enough to disrupt a star. So that other star is just fine. It's still there and it can keep transferring material back to the star and eventually 50, 100, 200, 1,000 years later build up enough material on this star again that it once again erupts. But that's all that's happening. All that's happening is that we're transferring material from one star to another and that a star that was dead, a white dwarf star, can actually re-erupt and come, become brighter. So it can become brighter than it was before, brighter than it was when it was a star even depending on the exact situation. But we see a number of these out there. Now this is quite different from a supernova. A star like the Sun won't, won't become a nova, won't become a supernova. It does not have enough material in it. Has enough material to become a nova only if it had a companion. Now, sometimes you like to say, well, it could pick up some material from the planets or whatever. There isn't enough. You need a lot of material. The only place you're going to be able to get enough material to ignite this is from another star. You know, it could collect a planet, it could connect, collect a Jupiter's worth of material and it's not going to be enough to really do, do anything to get this to um, begin to erupt. You need a lot of material transferring, a good chunk of you know, the outer layers of the star, a good amount of materials being pulled off and onto this white dwarf. But it is a repetitive process. It will occur again and again and again until eventually that other star finishes going through its life and you end up with you know, two white dwarf stars just orbiting each other, then the process would stop. There'd be no source of material for either one of those two. All right. Now, I'm going to start looking at more massive stars. That's pretty much where the sun ends up. The sun, except we jumped ahead with the nova, uh, kind of stars not quite like the sun. But what's going to happen for a solar mass star? Well, here's, if you recall when they when they landed on the main sequence, when they went from forming, you know, way out here, they kind of all saw that same little hooked pattern and landed. Maybe at different places depending on the mass of the star, but their pattern was almost exactly the same. These are quite different. These stars, these more massive stars, things that are four times the mass of the sun, ten times the mass of the sun, form quite different patterns as they move. So here's a one solar mass star. That's what we looked at before. There's the helium ignition. It went almost straight up to do, to do that. More massive stars instead move almost from left to right across the HR diagram. That means they're not changing their luminosity, at least at first, not much. You know, maybe a little bit it went up, but not as significantly as the sun changed. Sun went from here to here. This one goes from here to here by the time it's burning helium. 
didn't change a whole lot. The more massive star, again, pretty much went straight across. It was really bright blue star, now it's becoming a really bright white and yellow and red star. But the paths are quite different. And we see that we actually get temperatures. Here we can start to burn helium, so helium is able to be burned into carbon. This star is actually hot enough to begin to burn carbon into heavier elements. You're going to start to form things like oxygen and neon and silicon on these higher elements. You're actually able to burn carbon, burn oxygen as they move across. So that means they're going to get much higher temperatures. They got more material in them, so they're able to create much higher temperatures and ignite these different fuels. Sun is going to form carbon in its core. It's going to collapse. It's going to get denser and denser and hotter and hotter. It's not going to reach the critical temperature needed to burn carbon into anything heavier. Just as the brown dwarf couldn't get enough energy to form, to burn hydrogen into helium, our sun will not be able to burn carbon. Other stars may stop. They may be able to burn carbon and then not have enough material to burn the next one. More massive stars, here carbon and oxygen, but can't get to the next stage. As you get more and more massive stars, there's a few that will be able to really work their way through the periodic table and work their way up to element 26, up to iron. And if you recall, we looked at that before. Iron was the most stable element. You can't get any energy by fusing it. So once you've fused up to iron in the core, you have no more energy source. You can fuse iron atoms together. You can do it, but you don't get any energy. It takes you energy. You have to put energy into it. So that's when these stars, these big, biggest stars, end up in big, big trouble. So, like the other stars, the high mass ones leave the main sequence. They stay on the main sequence while they're burning hydrogen into helium. Eventually they exhaust the hydrogen. If you recall, think from our lab, much, much faster than the lower mass stars. They've got lots more material, but they burn through it very, very quickly. So they do not last near as long on the main sequence. But everything that starts out is really the same. You burn hydrogen, you're done. You finish up that hydrogen. You now have a helium core with hydrogen around it. Eventually you're going to get to a helium burning core. You're going to start burning helium into carbon. So you're going to get a carbon core, helium around that, and then hydrogen around that burning. So you have multiple energy sources in these, and they'll begin to layer each other as they're able, as these more massive stars are able to burn heavier and heavier elements. So eventually this very massive star will be able to burn that carbon into heavier elements, and then have uh, inert core, carbon burning shell around it, helium burning shell around it, hydrogen burning shell around it. So the process will continue until you get up to iron in the core. Once you get to those most massive stars that can fuse up to iron, which isn't that far through the periodic table, we're only getting up to element 26 out of 90 some naturally occurring elements. It's not all that far through the periodic table. Now if we look at some of these, the helium flash that we talked about for the sun, doesn't happen when you get to the more massive stars. It's because things happen a lot faster. They can track, as con the sun had lots and lots of time for that core to compress down and really compress it as tight as it could possibly get. And that allowed the helium flash to occur. 
that all of a sudden you had these very high temperatures, you had this inert dead core that didn't want to expand, even though you're producing energy. So you had to use a lot of energy. You had to have this helium flash that slow, that quickly pushed it apart. In the more massive stars, the helium burning begins just gradually. You eventually get hot enough. The densities did not get near as extreme as they were in the star like the sun. And the helium burning gradually takes effect. It gradually starts burning helium into carbon. When you get to the even more massive stars, four and greater, you don't get any of those sharp jumps on the HR diagram that we had. If you recall, we had a star like the sun moved off and then it kind of zipped straight up here and then jumped back down. It had all these jumps <coughs> and little zigzags as it moved around. When you look at the more massive stars, they do, they kind of wander, they might go back and forth. But they don't really have any sharp jumps. Everything all happens nicely and smoothly as it moves back and forth. Big difference, again, this one changes its brightness quite a bit. It goes from there to there. This one, eh, it changes it a little bit, but not near as much. They pretty much go just straight left to right on the HR diagram, meaning their temperature is changing, their size is changing, they're getting a lot bigger. Remember, the biggest stars, largest stars are up here. So as we go from here to here, we're making a larger star, just as when we go from here to here, anything up going up towards this corner is forming a very, very large star. So they're getting very, very cool and very big, so incredibly large stars as well. But the movement that we see is much smoother. Here's a star. This is a very massive star. So this isn't a planetary nebula in the uh, process of formation. This is an unstable, extremely massive star, maybe 50, 50 or 60 times the mass of our sun. About as massive as you can possibly get a star. There's, there's a limit to how massive a star can even form just because of its uh, radiation pressure, but maybe 50 or 60 times the mass of the sun. And it's, they're not very stable. They don't live long. These are things that live only a few million years. And it's already ejecting out some material just because of its instabilities. It's pushing material off constantly as it goes. So this isn't part of a nova explosion. This isn't part of a supernova explosion, although this star will eventually likely get there. We're just seeing the very early stages where some of the material is slowly being pushed off into space. So these are the very massive stars. They're not very stable, the most massive ones. And this is even before we get to any of the troubles that they get to inside with their interiors. But we do see some of these. These are the kind of stars that astronomers monitor. You know, we'll wait for it to go supernova. We might be waiting and twiddling our thumbs for days, weeks, months, years, decades, centuries. You know, it takes, still takes, in many of these cases, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to get from the stage we're at to the point where that star is actually going to explode. We don't know where along that path it is. Is it ready to go? You know, will we hear about a supernova explosion before, before the end of the term? Or Will we still be waiting at the end of our, you know, a hundred years from now? Will our children or grandchildren still be waiting to hear about this star blowing up? So that's something that we don't know. And what we'll really get into a little bit more next time, I'll start talking about, we'll get to the supernovae and the, I sort of alluded to some of it, but we'll really get to the processes that occur there. So I believe, yeah, that's what I don't want to 
get to because that's really going to start getting into supernovae. So I'm going to start that on Wednesday and we'll get through that. If you have a homework, I can take that now or you can submit it on D2L sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. And then don't forget if you've got a third solar observation, I'll take that by Wednesday is, is due. So, questions? Otherwise, have a good rest of the day and I will see everyone on Wednesday.